listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Paladin, the premier technology provider for next-generation media companies. The Paladin platform automates mission-critical functions, from creator management and payments to business intelligence and campaigns. Visit paladinsoftware.com to learn more or request a product demo. Thanks for tuning in. This is an extra special live episode that was recorded originally as part of a discussion at this year's VidCon 2017 down in Anaheim. In this episode, I moderate a panel discussion among some of the leading experts in esports and online gaming, from Maggot Advisors to Twitch, ESL, and Team Liquid. We cover a wide range of topics, from the audience that watches esports to the dynamics of competitive gaming and the athletes that compete at the highest levels. We also talk about how online video and live streaming shape these emerging sports and the opportunities for brands and advertisers to get involved. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. We're about to jump into our future of esports panel, so take your seats and we'll jump right into it. How many of you guys play competitive esports? Really? Come on. How many of you guys play Zelda? Uh, at least we got some gamers out there. Uh, I love my shift, my switch. I always call it the shift instead of the switch. I love my switch. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about the future of esports for the next 45 minutes or so, how online video impacts competitive gaming. There will be time for questions in the end, and this time we'll make sure we get a mic out there to do it. And uh, real quickly, my moderator is James Creech. He's the co-founder and CEO of Paladin Software. He put all this together, so a round of applause for him when he comes out. Justin Delario is the director of esports programs at Twitch. Michael Blechars, who is the Vice President of Pro Gaming at ESL. Stan Press, Managing Director of Digital and Gaming for Maggot Advisors. And finally, Steve Aronset, CEO, Team Liquid. Come on out, let's spend some time talking about esports. All right. Thank you guys for coming out, hanging out late on a Friday. We're really excited. This is the premier esports panel that VidCon has ever offered. So we're really excited to get into uh, the future of, of esports and how that is impacting online video. I'm here with a absolute who's who of esports, and so uh, definitely the dumbest one up here. I'm going to let them do most of the talking, but Jim was nice enough to do quick intros. I thought I'd let them introduce themselves as well, and in fact, we have some cool content to show you along with that. So I'll kick things off and uh, let Justin introduce himself. Sure. I'm Justin Delario. I'm the director of esports programs at Twitch. Um, Twitch has quite a large uh, amount of involvement with esports across the board, but for some reference, I was specifically involved with game creators and helping them reach esports content success on Twitch. Well, hey guys, my name is Stan Press. I'm the Managing Director of Digital Gaming over at Maggot Advisors. We're a long-standing market research and consultancy firm. Myself, I've been in esports for about 12 years. I'm a former competitive gamer. Used to play things like Battlefield 2 and 2142 back when we had to pay for our own flights and hotels for traveling to esports events. It wasn't even called esports back then. Uh, at that point, we're also lucky enough to win as much hardware, now cash, just to sell off and try to pay back for all those flights we had. But I always make the joke that I always wish I was born 10 years later, just so I could have experienced esports as it is today. But as such, as a market researcher consultant, I get to help and support the industry, uh, work with a lot of these guys up here, and a lot of cool levels of just making sure that they're informed and know the audiences and can best support. Hi, I'm Michael Blihaj. I work for ESL. I'm a VP of Pro Gaming. Uh, ESL is the largest esports company in the world. We've got offices around the world. We run online leagues, televised leagues, as well as events in the stadium. And we are one of the largest esports broadcasters on Twitch. 
just as an example, we did 500 million hours consumed on all our digital platforms last year. And Steve, go ahead, take it away. All right, what's up, guys? My name is Steve Aronsett. I'm the co-CEO for Team Liquid. Team Liquid is one of the largest esports teams in the world. We have 65 players. We do about 5 million monthly viewable minutes uh, on Twitch. We're the third largest esports team content provider on the platform. And we are also one of the longest standing esports brands. Uh, we've been around for over a decade. Awesome. And I'm your moderator for today, James Creech, co-founder and CEO of Paladin. We build enterprise software for digital media companies, powering a number of MCNs, broadcasters, and studios. So again, thank you guys for being here. I wanted to start things off by talking a little bit about the audience. Who is consuming and watching esports content? Well, what's fascinating about this space is that it's a lot of research we've shown that this year, when looking at and polling American audiences, we found that 49% of America at this point heard of esports. We're now at about 29% that have actually seen some kind of esports content this last year. Well, at that point, what is the definition of mass market? When are we going to hit that point? At this point, I'd say we're getting real close. One of the things that we look at specifically at Twitch is where people are actually consuming the content. Right now on Twitch, 49% of esports is consumed via web, while 46% is being consumed via mobile which is a significant margin close over the last couple of years, where 5% is still being consumed on consoles. But I expect that you'll continue to see over the next year plus that uh, margin of close between mobile and web, and potentially web, uh, mobile will overtake both. So I would add to this that when we're talking about the audience, we always need to talk in, in terms of global. ESL reaches, the biggest events would reach viewers from about 160 to 180 countries. And it doesn't matter if it's a U.S. event or not. I suppose it's very similar with uh, Team Liquid, who probably have fans all over the world. I'm guessing dominant in North America, but in general, you would say your fan base is global as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we have a global fan base, and it varies by team. So we'll notice that some of our teams like Dota may be more European than North American, but fans of our smashers or Street Fighter players are typically in North America. So viewership is across the board, and as Stan mentioned, it is growing, and um, as Justin mentioned, it is you know split between mobile and PC, and that's what we're seeing on the team side as well. I also want to add that right now it's about a 73 to 27% split male to female, and 51% of it is aged between 18 to 34. So it does show you that it trends younger and more male, but we also are starting to see more women getting involved as viewers and competitors and spectators. How do you help brands think about this space and take advantage of reaching these audiences through esports content? So for Team Liquid, we work with a number of brands. We have some major partners like uh, Alienware, HTC. Um, we just renewed our six-year uh, contract with, with Alienware. Um, these brands are looking to use esports as a way of communicating their product or service and integrating with the millennial community in an authentic way, which is really hard to do right now because most millennials are just turned off to the blatant advertising and the click ads and, you know, it's just noise to them. And so they use esports and athletes and team brands to do integrations on an emotional level. So some interesting things that they like is just content. 
They love doing content around our teams and players, behind the scenes, narratives, documentaries, features, things that are presented by that particular product and service. And so there's a lot of affinity to creating that kind of emotional connection between fans and the endorsement from athletes. A good, great example I like to use, I, if there's any tennis fans out there, you know, you kind of rely on what if you were trying to buy a racket and you were going to say, who should I go? You might go and look at Djokovic or Serena and find out what racket they're using and then go buy the same one. And the same thing is in esports. Like what PC is my favorite, is Piglet using on the League of Legends team? And so we create content through endorsement as well of our, our athletes. So I'd say that from my experience working as sponsors on, on the event side, um, this audience of millennials, it's strictly, their entertainment is strictly on demand and opt-in. So even if you're ser- trying to serve advertising, they more often than not having uh, ad block turned on and stuff like that. So definitely content marketing is something that is a powerful vessel for esports marketing overall. We, ha- we worked with Intel for the last 11 years or 12 years almost as a company on projects like Intel Extreme Masters. The way companies like to leverage our content and, and what we do is embedding themselves into content but embedding themselves into content with a story so on our end if we are talking about intel processors we say all the pcs are using intel technology that the pro gamers are playing on if steve has a laptop sponsor most likely that that sponsor will ask we want your players to be visible on those on that content using our equipment and things like that this is how we generally weave that story in one story that we've created for the SSD group at Intel, for example, is whenever players come to our tournaments to compete, we give each and one of them an SSD drive because a pro gamer typically takes up to 45 minutes to sit down, check the resolution, change the resolution, refresh rate, window settings, in-game settings, mouse drivers, everything. So it takes up to 45 minutes to be comfortable in a PC setup. And then if you're going from the warm-up area to the stage or something like that, Doing that, that same process for 45 minutes just stops the show. So we embedded essentially SS, uh, the SSD from Intel as the centerpiece of that, where a player just pulls out the SSD, goes to the stage PC, slots in uh, that SSD drive, plugs in mouse, mouse keyboard and everything, and is ready to go in five minutes. So um, sponsors typically in esports like that type of story. I think I'll just add one other quick thing is, in esports on the team side, which is atypical for other professional sports, is that teams actually own the, for the large majority, own the likeness rights of our athletes. And so we're able to do really cool activations on behalf of like all 60 of our players. And just to incorporate how important broadcasting is, uh, Twitch as a platform, as the predominant market leader in the space, they produce content from the athletes as well. So the analogy might be, you know, what if Curry were to be in his driveway and set up a live streaming camera? How many people would actually tune in to watch him just play, you know, in, in the driveway? And what if he were to play an ad? And what if he were to be drinking a beverage? And so we sell all of those activations and all of the kind of creative around what we can do with our athletes and you know our partners and advertisers and, and sponsors are really excited about that space and interactivity uh, with Twitch and Twitch Chat. So Justin, obviously some of the you know hardware companies and others are, are very interested in the space. How does Twitch think about working with non-endemic advertisers? 
Uh, Twitch is working with quite a large amount of non-endemic advertisers on a regular basis. <laughs> I think in all of gaming, we probably have the largest sales team. And we're not only selling traditional media or programmatic or marketplace ads across our platform, but we're also regularly selling custom solutions, CPI-based install products for mobile, esports sponsorships, influencer partnerships, and then esports league and content type deals as well. So when a brand like a good example would be Mobile One. Mobile One is a brand that recently signed a contract with Twitch to sponsor one of the uh, esports leagues that we currently operate, which is the Rocket League Championship Series. Mobile One was not someone who came along and said, I want to sponsor the RLCS. Mobile One very much came to Twitch and said, I would like to reach this audience. And on top of reaching that audience, I would like the sentiment around our brand to be X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And after working with our client strategists for some time, Mobile One became comfortable with the idea of getting involved with the Rocket League Championship Series, and they did. Um, but another big non-endemic brand that's also sponsoring the Rocket League Championship Series is Brisk, who's sponsoring it in partnership with 7-Eleven. And that's a good example of a client who is not only placing their logo on the Rocket League Championship Series, but they're also going as far as to receive deliverables for custom influencer activations that are tied to the Rocket League Championship Series sponsorship. They are shooting custom commercial work, which we actually use one of Steve's companies to create, and going as far as to get involved directly with the pro players who are competing in the league by sponsoring on-site activations. And it's a really holistic approach, but it really takes a really holistic and diverse inventory to be able to provide that to brands. And we're seeing a lot of success. Now, you've all kind of shared some uh, interesting analogies to the traditional sports world, but there are obviously some significant differences as well. So one of those is that 95% of esports content is actually consumed via video rather than in-person live. Uh, how does that nuance affect how you work with brands or how you create content around esports? Yeah, I mean, uh, for Team Liquid, we, as you could see from the video, were at live events. We actually attended... In total, 278 events in 2016, which is significant, right, across all of our different teams and players. And But a lot of those, or every one of them is broadcasted online. So we really rely on a digital footprint in order to have our message bleed through to our community. So distribution platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram, as well as our network of forums that we have through wikis and the TL network, we use these to communicate our message and to create engagement around whatever activation we choose to implore for a particular sponsor. And those are that, you know, that's the delivery system. That's the channel. That's where the community is. And another big one that just popped up over the last year is Discord. You know, Discord is a, a platform where these communities are just growing and there's conversation and buzz and traffic. And so we have to interject our message into those kind of uh, streams of communication. And so we rely on the digital footprint in order to get the message across. Um, there are some activations that we do uh, in, at the event or in person, but uh, they pale in comparison to the digital footprint. Well, what's really cool about what's happening in the space right now is everything we're going to see with Overwatch League and hopefully maybe more with League of Legends in 2018 is just more visualization. We're already seeing a little of that in League of Legends. They already hit uh, two North American cities this year for LCSNA. I think it was Vegas and New York last year. Yeah, so uh, League of Legends does a great job of kind of traveling around North America in order to host the events. Absolutely. Yeah, so 
that's really cool because this opens more opportunities to create regional fans. At that point, we know how many people love local sports and how many people have those local jerseys, everything from high school to college to national level. We don't have that yet in esports, but this is the first few years we're going to start seeing more and more of that. More traveling events. Overwatch League is looking to have some kind of city franchise system. We don't know much about it yet, but we hopefully will soon. And this is going to create more and more live activations. More and more people are going to actually get used to watching these events in person than live, depending on where they live. Well, hey, if you live in LA and you can always go watch <laughs> North American LCS whenever you want, yeah, you can do that every weekend instead of watching it on tablet or PC. But not everybody has that luxury. I'd say that overall, it's even if you show up in person to an event, it's still video. It's not like you're watching a football pitch of some kind and people running around. You're still watching a screen. So it's important for us at live events to, A, think about the audience. So if we're going to the West Coast, does the event start at 10 a.m. in the morning or maybe at 1 p.m.? That's a big decision based on where our audience is. Uh, that might be wanting to uh, watch that content. So West Coast events, for that reason, start abnormally early. Um, That's why I usually miss the first part of it. So, yep. <laughs> so when, when we are at, uh, on the West Coast, we, we want to start around 11. When we are in Europe, we want to start around 2 p.m. in Europe so that New York has, you know, a fighting chance to wake up early and, and tune in. So these are the things we have to take into account, but also things like how do we make it entertaining uh, live in the stadium and how do we make people uh, think that it's worth it to uh, lift up their butts, go somewhere or even fly somewhere and watch the thing that they can watch on the you know, seven-inch screen on, on the tablet or whatever and watch it on a, on a big screen with, with other people. So, but eSports is predominantly video. Even if you show up in person, that's, you're still going to be watching a video feed. And, and another important piece when it comes to video is that when Steve's players play, let's say Steve's a basketball team owner, you, we're going to go to a you know, basketball game and it's going to take us five minutes to, to figure out if one of the, his guys is crazy based on how he moves, how he reacts, what he does and things like that. Whereas... When his League of Legends team plays, the moment the game starts, practically all body language of those players is isolated because their uh, performance is expressed through digital characters. And it's very, very tough to just take a second and, and show one of his players freaking out, maybe in the replay. So video work, we have to, we have to put in tremendous amounts of work before and during the event so that we create as many features and packages around the players as possible to project their personality, project their body language, because they don't have that vessel when they perform anymore. And how are you measuring performance, especially around viewership and engagement for those streams? Well, there are many, many metrics, and they change. And from different platforms, they are defined slightly differently. It used to be sessions. So somebody sat down, clicked play. That was the key metric. Then it was unique viewers. But... That's kind of odd between platforms as well and not really apples to apples between different platforms. Today, for me, the most valuable metric is the, the total number of hours consumed. Because if I know, uh, for example, uh, that I play one Intel ad per hour and somebody, overall the people, the global audience consume 100 million hours of my content, I can reasonably assume that I served 100 million ads to to people globally. So that to me is is a good metric, especially that events differ between you know multiple days. 
then you're going to accumulate more sessions and things like that, so uh, or more unique viewers. So those stats are kind of misleading. For me, the best stat in terms of metrics is the hours consumed. Yeah. I mean, time is the ultimate currency, <coughs> right? What are people choosing to do? Are they watching your tournament? Are they watching you know, another sporting event or, or yeah. other entertainment? Choice? So, for example, on Facebook right now, we, we stream on multiple platforms for some events. On Facebook, the engagement is very, very short, but to a very large number of unique viewers. So is that really good? And is it likely that over very short engagement periods, our sponsors were visible to those people and were those people really paying attention? The, the numbers are glamorous in terms of unique people, but in terms of engagement, it's not there yet. So yeah. hours consumed for me is, is definitely, for the umpteenth time, the best. Stat. Yeah. Justin, how do you think yeah. about that from the platform so, perspective? To add to what Michael was saying, uh, at Twitch, actually, we primarily also look at whether you want to call it hours watched or we call it, we, we go by minutes watched. Um, same difference, but we're constantly doing case studies to try and determine, however, what additional audience skews and how they perform and, and watch mean over time. I mean, a good example is, um, since most big esports moments happen on Twitch, the general consumer audience will regularly talk about the peak concurrent users they saw in any esports stream and talk about that as if it's the metric for um, performance for that content. Like, wow, I saw this new and upcoming game reach into the hundreds of thousands of audience. That's just, I guess this is an eSport now, or this is really coming along. However, there's a lot of games whose eSports content tell us uh, quite a different story because there's some developers who've also created a really engaged audience who is super loyal to the content and will watch every moment of eSports for that game. And users in that game might have like a you know, an hour minutes watch, like an average of an hour spent on channel every time they watch, which is, uh, in some ways potentially more valuable to advertisers because they're consistent and they're, they're loyal and they're maybe likely to be, um, grow affinity for brands that are being advertised across that product. So there's, while we do generally think of minutes watched, and the consumer audience is most of the time enamored by total peak concurrent users, there are a lot of other viewership stories than both of those alone. Well, this is also what I really want to talk about is we see the differences in how these attract. Even just the difference from minutes to watch that you tell that to a brand is going to have a, well, it could be a completely different conversation. But the fact is that there is not a lot of alignment from any of the teams, leagues, or platforms on what that data looks like. Because it, you talk to a traditional brand agency who's interested and open to talking about esports, but you give them this data that is endemic to esports. Well, they're not going to understand it. They'll understand TV data. They'll understand radio. They'll understand news. That's what makes sense to them. So right now, in terms of just how do we translate this, where do we meet in the middle? How do we meet in the middle? These are the big questions that we're helping to try to figure out. So now that we've talked a little bit about the audience and, and the viewership and measurement, let's talk about the economics. How do we make money out of esports? I mean, uh, I think we all started talking about advertising already by course. talking about the way that brands are engaging via the online video that esports produces. So first and foremost, sponsorships and advertising. Um, but I think that it's a lot of other monetary channels in esports that aren't quite as developed. Um, and that's not to say that sponsorships and advertising is developed either. There's a long way to go, in my opinion. Yeah, because we look at traditional sports as a good example where they found many different layers to find money from. At that point, advertising, local advertising, national sponsors, broadcast rights, merchandising. These really don't happen in esports just yet. At least if they do, they're on very different scales. At that point, merchandising could be a massive source of revenue for traditional sports. But in esports, it's still only 5, 10, 20% for some certain teams. 
and less so the platforms per se. The leagues have a merchandising strategy. The teams have a merchandising strategy. You guys have your own merch as a platform, but not say around esports. So at that point, how do we figure this out? I also look at digital goods. I say digital goods, I mean DLC. I mean buying a skin of your favorite team on it. We've only seen a little bit of that actually come through in a consistent way. And surprisingly, it's not from some of the biggest competitive titles yet. So I want to see more of that. I want to see the ability to buy an esports crate, skin, gun, you name it, every single game that I play. And Steve, from a team standpoint, when you think about 360-degree representation of these athletes, how do you think about monetization opportunities? You know, uh, monetization in esports is kind of a, uh, it's a big question. It depends on what perspective you're looking at it from. Uh, the largest amount of revenue is generated by the developers and the amount of skins and in-game items that, th that are sold. And for the last decade, before June 1st, really, of this year, developers have held that revenue and not really shared it with team owners or tournament organizers and they've retained all of that. And it's been, you know, like a, a marketing cost in order to run the league. However, on June 1st, uh, the LCS announced that they would introduce a franchise for their game. This is like the most monumentous event ever in esports history for teams. Because as a team owner, to get to your question, we have survived from a revenue perspective based on the partnerships and sponsorships that we have with, you know, Alienware and, and HGC and various others in HyperX. But now we will actually share in a percentage basis with the amount of revenue that's driven from the leagues that we participate in. Just like the you know, Golden State Warriors gets a check from the NBA or, you know, the Capitals gets a check from the, the NHL. You know, now Team Liquid will get a check from being part of the LCS. That's just insane. Like, I never thought that that would happen. So uh, it's happening and it's been announced. And so a majority of our revenue in the future will be from the leagues that we participate in. And second to that will be uh, advertisers and, and partners and right now, because we own the likeness rights of all of our athletes and the representation of that, as far as that continues, we'll also generate revenue from there. Secondary to that, we do merchandising, hats, hoodies, you know, jackets like this, and in-game items. But those are kind of secondary to those primary revenue drivers. I was waiting for a store plug or something. <laughs> yeah. No, this jacket is nice. <laughs> I was going to say we can buy all those same shirts that the four of us offer some reason right. for, too. So. Exactly. Yeah. So just to give everybody a sense of perspective, the international Dota tournament in Seattle, organized by Valve Software, the producer and publisher of, of Dota 2, is supported by the community. You can, in order to support, you buy a $10 in-game item, $2.50 goes to the prize money, and $7.50 Valve pockets. They've managed to raise about $20 million last year in increments of $2.50, and the same amount triple goes into Valve's, Valve's pockets. So there is a very, very powerful way uh, for publishers to monetize esports. For companies like ESL, like uh, Team Liquid, it is not as easy uh, because there is no, the tie directly to the audience isn't as strong. And historically, um, the reason esports leagues have had, you know, until a couple of years ago, it was actually a battle for survival. So when I started working at ESL, Intel Extreme Masters events were happening, you know, in a corner of a Comic-Con, there was a little booth 
uh, with not even a stage, then we added a stage at some point, then we had to take up more floor space, and then suddenly we had to, you know, rent out a stadium, and now next to a stadium we have an expo, which where we flipped next to an esports major event, there is an expo. That's a good source of revenue for us. Something that Steve has mentioned, which is a revenue share from the league, um, ESL is doing that as well with the ESL Pro League for Counter-Strike. Obviously, it's also shifted to a large degree these days where event organizers are now flying in all the participants. It didn't used to be like that, uh, simply because there wasn't money for it. But that's changing as well. Now Steve has players who are super attractive to our audiences. Uh, we now are relying on a revenue to, you know, attract 10,000 people to buy tickets uh, and we need Team Liquid to be a partner. So things are definitely moving in the direction that uh, Steve really likes. But that's because for everybody there is more money in the ecosystem because we're at that tipping point where... It's not about survival anymore. It's now about optimization of, of that uh, monetization process. So you mentioned the tipping point, the explosive growth that we've seen in the esports space, especially around the opportunity to monetize. And so with that, we've seen an influx of venture capital, traditional sports teams and leagues investing in teams or, or getting involved in the esports world. What does that look like going forward? What is the future of uh, outside involvement or, or some of these uh, traditional sports players getting more involved in the esports world? We've seen a lot of that already, actually. We've had Delaware North looking at Splice. Uh, Steve, you could probably talk a bit about yours after I go through a couple examples. Let's see. Cloud9 raised a bunch from a lot of different sources. Then Mortals recently Mortals took, took from AEG. Right. So we're seeing a lot of investments coming from a lot of different parties because in order for a lot of these big organizations who do have a League of Legends and a Overwatch team, if they want to play in those up-and-coming experiences, they're going to have to raise a lot of money, some of it very quickly, to be able to justify entry. At that point, the whole point of a franchise is that you buy your spot. Preferred partnership or franchise, whatever you call it, a lot of that money is going to have to come from somewhere. But a lot of these companies are realizing that this is potentially a good investment. This could yield returns, maybe not in a couple of years, but maybe 10, 20, 30 years. There's also a little bit of FOMO if you're looking at it from that perspective. Like, oh, hey, he did it, so I got to do it now. Like That happens a lot, but that's okay because, hey, we're getting the investments. I'm, I'm very happy with that. But Steve, I'd love to hear about yeah. what you've been through. Yeah, so uh, Team Liquid in uh, July of 2016, we partnered with Peter Guber, who's one of the owners for the Golden State Warriors, Ted Leonsis, Wizards Capitals, and most recently added to that group was Jeffrey Vinnick, Tampa Bay Lightning. And you know, one of the reasons why we did this is because you know, we have been very foot-to-mouth, like rough-and-tough esports organization over the last decade. You know, Victor and I never really took a loan. We relied on our partners in order to do what we've built in the community and all of the engagement around our fan base, which is very rabid and it's big and it's worldwide. But now we face the entry to all of these franchises. And these franchises, it's not like you get in for free. You got to pay a franchise fee. And so for League of Legends, that's been discussed at 10 million. Overwatch is, you know, going to be similar, if not more. And in addition to that, you need to make sure that you're investing into the infrastructure to the development of players so that you can recruit the best talent and then you can maintain competitiveness across all of your different esports. Well, that has a price tag too, right? Like we just uh, signed a 10,000 square foot training facility. It's in Santa Monica right next to Riot Game Studios. That was a big deposit check. <laughs> and we also have to house all of these 60 gamers. Well, that's a lot of living space. And so in order for us to maintain our position as one of the elite best esports organizations in the world, we need 
a lot of money in order to do that. And so we partnered with people uh, that have access to it. And then we also want to find the right partners, people that are great to work with. And you know whether they provide media support, distribution, access to venues, they have uh, a lot of resources in a specific geography that may be where we want to be heading in esports in the future. So we factor in these kind of strategic partnerships and the value associated with them in pairing to the capital uh, infusion that's necessary in order for us to maintain our position and accomplish the things that we want to do as TL. So we mentioned quite a few teams. But just to make sure that we cover some of the other places that VCs haven't seen spending money recently, some of the other popularities you'll see money spent are on technology-based startups. A lot of uh, young and ambitious uh, engineers out there are trying to unlock a lot of what they identify as potential problems in the esports space going forward, whether it's like true identity, uh, competition systems, uh, utilization of like block and chain type technology for the eventual or what a lot of people believe will be an eventual space where wagering exists across all esports and other types of Plus gambling endeavors. That we've seen a lot of coaching apps. Yeah. At that point, you have all these tools and a lot of people who want to get competitive, even if it's just to be better than their friends, which is a big motivator for a lot of people who play multiplayer games. They don't need to be the best, but they just want to beat their friends. That makes a lot of sense. So we're seeing a lot of apps, tools, websites, coaching systems where you could actually be one-on-one with a pro gamer and pay a reasonable fee for it just to get an hour. At that point, you spend that kind of same amount of money doing a private lesson for a language. If you want a private lesson on how to be better at Overwatch or League or Counter-Strike, you can do that. But we're also seeing content platforms coming up where they're bringing in all these programmers from all these teams, just creating guides upon guides, videos, strategies, everything that a pro uses to help the fans, the viewers, the everyday Counter-Strike player be the best they can be. That's what I get excited about. Let's talk a little bit more about that player experience. I mean, you touched on how hard your athletes train, and we've got a couple former pros on the stage. What was it like when you were competing at that level? So I used to be a player, uh, maybe not a great one, but I was one. And, you know, back then there was really no structure. I mean, you just played the hell out of a game and, you know, you end, you were pretty good at it and hopefully got to the top leaderboard and you played on teams. It's very different now. You know, the experience as a professional player, the, the standard is to have a coach, an assistant coach, you have a chef, you have a sports psychologist or mental coach, you... We also are partnered with a doctor from the Mayo Clinic that does like physiological testing on the guys and eye tracking and cognitive function and visualization and looking at optimizing all of these things for athletes. I mean, it's just everything that you would expect from other professional sports that has now become the standard in esports development for athletes. And the reason for that is because athletes aren't getting paid like a couple thousand bucks a month anymore. You know, it's, they have substantial salaries, they're employees, they have benefits, they have all their living covered for them. And we are doing everything we possibly can to develop them as better athletes than when they came into Team Liquid. And that is now competitive because other organizations that have also taken investment and have great partners are trying to do the same thing. And it's kind of that war for the best talent and putting together the best roster. So that has created a very healthy ecosystem that players can now participate in in various different games. And from Team Liquid's perspective, you know, our investment in a particular game varies based on you know how big the game is, the notoriety with a particular game. So let's say, for example, uh, PUBG 
All right, PUBG is a brand new game and you know, the eSports component, we don't know what's gonna happen with it yet. So our investment will kind of pair with the viewership associated with it. You know, like a League of Legends is obviously way up there versus and Rocket League started small and has been growing over time. So we kind of uh, decide how many resources we want to provide associated with uh, the prevalence of the game. That's crazy that you talk about all these things because you're right that a lot of the talent of these players, there is a ceiling. But at that point, now you're fighting for any incremental benefit you can possibly get, whether it's eye tracking, visual acuity, having a right diet, sound body means a sound mind. These things are what's going to really help every pro get to the absolute best. And one team's going to have those players that just edge out just over the other team just a little bit better. That's going to be one bad day of having too much coffee the night before and you slept poorly and you messed up a whole game. Like That's how competitive League of Legends and Counter-Strike is right now. So before we take some audience questions, let's close out with a few rapid-fire questions for you guys. Number one, I want to hear, just go down the line quick, 30 seconds, what each of you are playing these days. Uh, currently, I'm playing a lot of PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds. If I'm not playing that, I'm playing Clash Royale or Rocket League. Uh, Overwatch competitive on PC and a lot of PUBG. Blood Bowl 2 on PC, number 10 on the open ladder in the world. There we go. <laughs> nice. Uh, I've been playing League of Legends, PUBG, <laughs> and Clash Royale and actually Mobile Legends on my phone. <laughs> I was cool. going to say, we're going to have to play PUBG after this one. <laughs> I guess so, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what do you guys see coming next? What is the future of esports if you had to make one or two quick predictions? For me, the future of esports, I can't really make any predictions game-wise. That's really tough uh, in a short time. However, I think that some of the things we discussed today, like <laughs> monetization is more figured out. Uh, it's more predictable. Direct and indirect is more defined, and I think that uh, spending will increase from the outside, as it has been on a regular course over the last several years, and I think we'll continue to see more and more stability for teams' involvement in leagues. Uh, That's why most of what we covered today was a pretty good uh, snapshot. What we definitely see on the research side is we need to start looking at a shift of live content, especially on digital, is not the only thing people watch when it comes to esports. It's highlights. We see almost just as many hours watching live content as we see in highlights. At that point, you have all this content that's not being monetized as much, not being branded or sold into or leveraged. So that's something that I get really excited about is seeing live and like digital live and digital highlights being looked at from the brands, teams, leagues, and platforms. I'd say there's a good reason those guys are not talking about you know the next 10 years because that's technology. Esports will move with the development of technology, which is very hard to predict overall. But I'd say a bubble is coming up. I mean, there's so much money in the space these days. Everybody's trying. Everybody's thinking, I'll blow those $2 million if that gets me ahead a little bit. If they're wrong, that's, you know, contributes to the bubble. So there's some kind of bubble imminent. I don't think it's going to be as, as bad as the previous esports bubble a few years ago, but I'm expecting a bubble of some kind. Uh, from the team perspective, I would say right now there's probably you know, 50 semi-relevant esports team brands within the space. Over the next five years, that will probably get narrowed down by, you know, a fourth or so. I think that will also cause a lot of the advertising and sponsorship revenue for specifically teams to also kind of be funneled into those handful of organizations that that uh, succeed through this phase of growth. And if you were starting a business in the world of online gaming today, what would you do? Hmm. I'd be a pro player. Okay. Because yourself's your business at that point. Sure. Yeah, like I said earlier, it's like <laughs> 10 years ago. Like, I wish I was born 10 years later. I would love to be a pro. I'd probably fail as a pro and do what Steve does. 
<laughs> I mean, I love what I do, but I would love to play again if I was good. <laughs> I like you already did that. You already failed and became a yeah. popular choice. Huh? Everyone wants to go pro, wants to practice after this. Well, great. Well, again, thank you guys for sharing so much insight. I want to open it up to the audience now. If anyone has questions, we're going to run a mic around. So uh, please raise your hand and we'll bring it out to you. Yeah, just wondering what your guys' thoughts are on Mixer. Obviously, it's like making a lot of noise right at the moment. Do you guys think that there's going to be a shift, especially, obviously, uh, Twitch? I don't know. Are you guys thinking about that? Or are you kind of like, eh? I think that Mixer has some really cool product features. I'm interested to see how they grow over time or don't grow. Yeah, like I, I think there's some cool stuff going on there. I think it's a new avenue for up-and-coming streamers who want to start streaming. They might see all these other platforms as really congested. It's like, oh, where do I even begin? How do I grow big there? Mixer might give them a new avenue. I don't know if I like the name that much. Going from Beam to Mixer, I understand there are probably some reasons why they had to change it from legal reasons, but that's probably my only concern. I'll be frank and I'll say I'm not too familiar with it. Yeah, I've never heard of Mixer either. Well, that actually gives a good answer right there. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, I was just wondering, a lot of the reason why people don't watch esports is because they don't really understand what's going on in the game. Uh, what are some ideas that you guys have to try to get the casual audience more into uh, esports? Because you need to know like what each character does or, you know, how the Counter-Strike map works. What are you guys' ideas of like integrating the casual audience more into esports? Thank you. When it comes to the success of the content and actually engaging that audience who maybe is a uh has a taller, tougher barrier to entry. We're constantly talking about this at Twitch, whether it's, um, but there's definitely no solid answer right now. Um, there's a lot of ideas out there, whether it's standing up streams where the commentators are specifically purposed to uh, break the game down at a lower level and really be inviting of new audience, all the way up to um, how you think about the narrative of the upcoming event that this high barrier to entry person might watch and how far out from the event they start being fed information about it so that they come in already understanding a certain level of detail. And if it, if they have that level of knowledge, are they then easier to stick? But uh, separate of thinking about what content is tough, I think alternatively a solution is create games that have a low barrier to entry to understand. Uh, I'm not knocking League of Legends or Dota or any game like that at all because I love those games. But in the last year and a half, um, something I was directly involved with was like creating Rocket League's esports community. And I think this game is proving week after week right now in every big event that there's really something to be said for a game that somebody could tune in and watch and it only take about 30 seconds to really understand what's going on. It's cars playing soccer. And that, I think, audience is sticking to that really easy concept to understand. I definitely want to add to that. And I, I love the fact that we mentioned RLCS or Rocket League. It is basically things that Americans love, cars and kicking something into a goal. But when you look at trying to improve the spectator experience, you did highlight the education aspect. We need to figure out how to teach people about who these characters are. But we also need to create affinity. By creating affinity, we look at both, well, how, why would we play these games? Because we've been playing them forever. You get them into when we're young. At that point, League of Legends has been around since 2009. And that's, what, eight years now? Then we're looking at Counter-Strike hit 18 years. Dota has been around for, in terms of whatever form of mod, since 2003, 2001? But the point is that we've created Affinity because we've been playing these games for so long. So the longer that these games are around, the more that we get into these through our youth, that education will come, that affinity will build. Do you think those games have staying power, or are we going to see you know, an evolution and a, and a new kind of series of titles come up? Well, they've kept uh, my interest a lot longer than other things have. If you look again, 18 years for CSGO, 8 years for League of Legends. We still talk about them to this day. We never thought we would imagine that 
even five, ten years ago, for each of those games, we'd still be talking about them. I think what allows them to last, too, is if you look at both Dota 2 and League of Legends side-by-side uh, -side photographs, maybe five years ago, the game and the game today, they look extremely different. Graphics engines are being updated, gameplay is being updated, and there's constant changes to the actual fine-tuning of the game that allows the players to feel like they're experiencing something new. Uh, I think several years ago, I might have said, I wonder what's going to replace these games, but I have a lot of confidence that games have figured out lasting power more recently. Well, and it seems like the major game publishers, especially Riot and Blizzard, have realized you know, the, the impact of esports and are designing games to create a great visual experience for viewers as well. Yeah. With accessible viewers, you look at Overwatch, there's no blood. It didn't say you killed anyone easily, you eliminated someone. It immediately opens it up to many more sponsors and a lot more activities can be built around it. I think overall, to come back to, to your point, uh, there, there is a space in video games for complex games that cannot be explained. Dota 2 cannot be explained. I don't care what kind of noob stream you're going to do. <laughs> cannot be explained. And that, that's okay. I'm going to go to a baseball game. I'm not going to understand it. And not a lot's being done for me to understand the game. But I go with Steve. He's going to sit next to me. He's going to say, he's going to have to do this. This is why he's doing that. Oh, this is why this is amazing. That's how people learn to share the experience. That's how viewership grows. You sit down next to a guy and say, Faker is amazing because of A, B, C, and D. Uh, nobody that's generally kind of, oh, I'm interested in esports. Why don't I look up this gigantic YouTube channel with hours and hours of content to help me understand? That's not how it happens in, in real life in sports. That's not how, you know, if I'm into judo and I want to get Steve into watching judo or whatever, I'm going to explain stuff to him like friend to friend. Steve's never going to take the time to watch tutorials online or or anything. Uh, I think that's the wrong area to focus. I don't think baseball needs to be explained or dumbed down for Europeans. And I don't think necessarily that the complicated esports games have to be explained or dumbed down. Frankly speaking, I, I don't think a game like League of Legends has fully tapped into all, it, all of its potential within its own player base, let alone from outsiders. So I wouldn't really focus on, on that that much. Of course, there's things to be done, but it's not a real problem, I think. I'll just add one last thing, which is, from my perspective, one of the most capturing moments for a casual fan to get into esports are the displays of excellence. And that's, you know, paralleled like a half-court shot or a Hail Mary at the very end of a game or, you know, the last-second shot that you get to win the NBA Finals. You know, and in League of Legends, it's like the Phoenix Quadra kill or, you know, Faker getting a, you know, a Penta kill in a crucial fight. And these things kind of like percolate to the top and casual fans are able to see wow, someone can play this game at this level? This is insane, right? Like, I, I can't believe this is happening. And that awe and that, you know, appreciation, it's almost like if I were to go to a symphony and listen, or if I was going to listen to somebody play the piano. And I don't follow basketball at all, but I went to a basketball game, and I was like, who is that guy that's just like, go, like, he's almost dancing around on the court. He looks amazing. They're like, oh, that's Curry. I was like, oh, okay. You know, so... I've heard of him. <laughs> you, you kind of come to the sport because of how well it's being played, and then you develop affinities for particular players that are doing those things, and that human interest then leads to the team, and so it's the responsibility of the developer to really highlight those moments of excellence, and that's where I feel like, at least to get to your question, like how do you get the casual fan involved in esports? You start, I think you start there. Damn, James, you should have asked that question earlier. <laughs> that was awesome, yeah, thank you, keep them coming. I would argue that esports has been built on the blood, sweat, and tears of the community, and a lot of that has been grassroots and especially volunteer-driven. 
So my question is, with the growing influx of capital, do you think that it's going to trickle down and make it easier for smaller organizations to grow? Or do you think it's going to end up going to the top and being winner take all? I won't lie, that's a good question. And it's going to be really tough to answer that because we haven't really seen many presidents before. If you look at traditional sports, we could maybe look at everything from the last hundred years. But is that a good comparison? At that point, I do see a lot of need for talent. Maybe not at a grassroots level, but we need good people across every vertical who understand esports. You have no idea how hard it is to find an accountant who gets esports. Yeah. You have no idea how to find a medical professional that is actually eager to understand esports rather than just to take a paycheck that you need their help. We need more subject matter experts who care about esports who could fit that goal. So whether there's going to be a place for everybody, I always think there will be. And there will be places you can get in a smaller level. There'll be smaller games. There'll be smaller communities. You can always get started somewhere. The fact is that this is an industry built off of passion, and I don't think that'll ever, ever go away. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity. It depends on where you get into esports. You know, PUBG is a great example. You know, there's just a small studio in Korea that just you know, now is the second highest viewership on Twitch, I think, consistently over the last four months. So, you know, you can hit it big as a new studio or, you know, it may be tougher as a new team to develop a fan base, but it kind of depends on where you start. There's so many different areas within esports that you can get involved in. So we just made the perfect point that we no one expected a PUBG. Well, you're not going to see that in traditional sports. Maybe the most exciting that happened was UFC. But beyond that, how many different games would come out and just create this amazing new space and amazing new communities? Yeah, I'm cutting you off. Oh, that's you're all done. the time we have. I well, saw that look. You're done. That's that, thank okay. you guys. Gonna... Round of applause. <laughs> thank you guys great so much. Thank We're... you guys. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Thank you.